for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. I'm joined by my podcast buddy today. She has presented with me uh, about podcasting at various fall conferences and JPZ events. And that is Charlotte, North Carolina's own Stacy Sims from the class of 93. Thanks for joining us, Stacy. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a great idea and I'm, I'm very excited and very honored to be part of it. Thank you. We are honored to have you. And also worth mentioning the documentary on the world's greatest media classroom that Scott McFarlane put together 10 years ago for 40th anniversary. You were the voice of. I can't believe that's 10 years ago, but of course it is. <laughs> That was such an honor. I, I can't thank Scott enough. And thank you to you know, everyone who helped with that. I mean, what an honor with all of those voices and all of that history to be asked to voice that. That was a thrill for me. And it was really interesting because I got to learn more about the history of the station than I, I knew. I thought I knew a lot. But boy, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It's really well done. And I, I say that as the person who contributed, you know, I mean, I contributed my voice, but I say it's very well done. You know, just in general, the production is incredible. They did such a great job on that. Well, I'd be lying if I didn't say I cram watched it right before interviewing Scott for the podcast. And that gave <laughs> me some context to talk to some people from different eras that I did not know as well. So your point is certainly well taken. For those alumni and listeners who don't know you, give us a brief history of how you came to Syracuse, got involved with the station, what you did at the station, and then we'll get into your career since. You got it. Um, I think like a lot of people you're going to be talking to, I always knew that I wanted to do something with broadcasting and decided to go to Syracuse because of that. So I'm from New York. It wasn't a big stretch for me to drive a couple of hours upstate to go to college. And when I got to Syracuse, I tried to be part of everything. Um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I thought TV reporting, but I went to UUTV at the time. Right. Which is now what? Citrus TV, I think. Orange, citrus, some, some variety of, so of, the, of fruit. Yes. <laughs> the campus TV station. I went to the Daily Orange and I went to WJPZ. So for the first couple of weeks of my freshman year, I tried to do everything. And then, you know, kind of slowly as things go, it settled out. And for me, it actually settled out at the TV station and the paper. I wrote for the Daily Orange my freshman year. I stayed at the TV station my whole time I was at Syracuse. And I actually didn't go back to the radio station after the first couple of weeks or I guess months of my freshman year. But for me, my story was a little different. I graduated in 93 and my first couple of jobs after college were in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. So I got a job in television in Utica as a TV reporter and then an anchor. And then I came back to Syracuse and did mornings at Channel 3 for a couple of years. And during that time, and it was really beginning the summer before my senior year, and I'll talk about that in a minute, I reconnected. Never had another shift, but reconnected with WJPZ and got a lot more involved than I ever expected. And my summer before my senior year, it's because I lived with Beth Russell, who was then later Beth Gorab, who was really involved at the station. Sure. And so I made a whole bunch of friends there and kind of got sucked in again, but did not work there. Just had a lot of fun with the people who did. And that's kind of the common thread, I think, through 50 years, Stacey, is I think back to my time there, and I'm sure it's true for other alumni, is 
there were people who worked at the station, but because it was such a big, inclusive family, the friends of the people who worked at the station also became part of that group and sort of, we all went out to the bars together, we all went out to eat together, we all partied together, we all kind of did that stuff because the group was just so wildly inclusive. Well, it was funny because my senior year, I worked at WSYR as a weekend radio reporter. So when you were like, we partied together, we went to bars together. Well, I was kind of lame my senior year and there was a lot of partying (laughs) happening because I had to go to work all weekend. You had that silly career thing you were trying to get a jump on. (laughs) And Beth worked at Y94. So the two of us were over at that office. SYR, when I was there, and Y94 was like at the bottom of this amazing glass, beautiful building. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like, ooh, this is going to be very glamorous. Of course, it was the (laughs) nicest building I think I worked in again for years and years because most (laughs) TV and radio stations are not in the nicest buildings. But it was a situation where I became friends with Beth. And then that was the summer where they gave away a car at the state fair. Mm. And they were doing all sorts of crazy things at the radio station. And because I was working in radio, the city was talking about WJPZ. And it became, for me, a place where I kind of reconnected. And as you said, hung out with people. That senior year, you know, you're all looking to make connections and where am I going to work and what am I going to do? It became kind of a different way for me to get involved. And then, of course, after graduation, I started going back to the reunions and the banquets. Gotcha. So mentioned working in Utica, working in Syracuse. Talk about your professional path since graduation, because you have done a lot. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I went to Utica, New York, right after college and got a job at WUTR Mm -hmm. as a reporter and stood out in the snow for several months. But it was very quick. Six months later, I got hired across the street at WKTV and became their five o'clock anchor. Came back to Syracuse a couple of years later, did mornings for three years. And then in 99, I moved to Charlotte, where I am now. I stayed um, at a TV station here in Charlotte, WBTV, for three years. And then, frankly, I couldn't get where I wanted to go in television. I wanted to stay in Charlotte. And, you know, you know how it goes. A lot of times, if you want to get promoted, you got to leave. Yeah. And I really did not want to leave. I loved Charlotte. I already had started a family. I met my husband Slade in Utica and we had moved here together. We had started a family. My daughter was almost one and I was very fortunate and got hired at WBT radio and did mornings there for 10 years. So that I I actually had moved to Charlotte to get away from mornings. I thought that's enough. I did it for three years in Syracuse. I never want to get up at 2.30 in the morning again. And then three years later, there I am again. And because of that early morning wake up, Um, By that time, my daughter was about to enter middle school. My son was in elementary school. Life was bananas. My husband worked nights. He owned a restaurant. So we never saw each other. And I decided to leave. Um, I did leave on my own. There were some mitigating factors that made it kind of easy to leave. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I was very fortunate to be able to just leave on my own. I was not let go. And kind of took a year or two to figure out what to do next. Worked at Time Warner Cable, which I think is Spectrum News now here in Charlotte as an MMJ, which is not a term I was familiar with at the time. Multimedia journalist, right? Multimedia journalist. I kept calling it a one-man band, and right. they were like, no, MMJ, one-man band, which actually was a lot of fun. I loved editing. I loved thinking things through in a way that I hadn't before. I did not like schlepping the camera. Um, that was not a lot of fun for me. <laughs> but other than that, it was great. And then after about a year of, or so of doing that, I started my podcast and that has been a whole new career move for me. 
So the podcast, you are one of the podcasters, one of the few podcasters I know that has actually monetized your podcast. Tell me how the podcast got started, the idea, and how you grew it so much. And then we'll come back to JPZ and how that uh, has influenced your experience. Sure. Uh, Podcasting was something for me that I felt like I knew very well before I started it. Turns out I didn't, but I thought I did. All of us radio people think that. (laughs) I had listened to podcasts for a very long time, you know, since the mid 2000s, when you really had to take your iPod and plug it into the computer and download stuff so you could listen to it. Hence the name podcast. You were an OG podcast listener. I was an OG podcast listener, right? Not a podcaster. But, you know, my son has type 1 diabetes. It used to be called juvenile diabetes, and he was diagnosed right before he turned two. And that was in 2006. So I was looking for podcasts about diabetes, and I found quite a few. But they were mostly adults talking about their own personal stories, Mm -hmm. which was really fun, really good, helpful information for me. But as a person who'd spent their career in news, I was looking for the diabetes news show that I wanted, right? Where's the news? Ah. As you listen, you're thinking, well, Stacey, it's, I, I see it on the news all the time. Well, what you see is one or two stories a year about, you know, the difference maybe between type one and type two. Maybe if you watch CNBC, you'll see some stock stories on some diabetes technology companies. And then you see a lot of unfortunate stories that are not the best about type two diabetes. And there's a lot of misunderstanding. Let's put it that way. So I decided to start a diabetes show that was focused on news and information. Before you get into that, Stacey, what are some of the misconceptions that are out there just for anybody listening? If there's one or two, they're going to put to bed right here. Oh, thank you so much. Let's take three minutes and talk about diabetes. And I'm going to say three minutes because I have a lot to get through. Because as you listen, it's quite possible if you have a type 2 diagnosis, but your medication is not working for you, you don't have a big family history, and you might even be on the thinner side and you're doing everything you're supposed to do, and your A1C is not coming down, you might have something called LADA, or 1.5 diabetes. And LADA is latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. It truly is 1.5. It is not a made-up thing. Um, But people do call it by both of those names. Hmm. This is something that is a real diagnosis. It's a diagnosis that is a little different from type 1, very different from type 2. Basically, doctors see a person with type 1 diabetes, or they see a person who's over the age of, let's say, 20. They come in with diabetes symptoms. Immediately, you have type 2. Well, you might not. So type 1.5 is something to keep in mind. Hmm. But when I talk about misconceptions with type 2, there's this hashtag dessert, hashtag diabetes on a plate. There's all this misconception about diabetes is caused by sugar, lack of exercise, etc. There's a new whole school of thinking that diabetes is a disease of high blood sugar. But in reality, being overweight, being sedentary does not always lead to diabetes. And you can be fitter and still develop type 2 diabetes. So there's a lot of blame and shame that actually keeps people from seeking treatment. There's a lot of shame that keeps people from starting insulin. Like, oh no, I've done something wrong if I need insulin. Yeah. Where quite probably it's genetics. You may be overweight, right? And wouldn't it be great if we could all lose a lot of weight and be very fit and run marathons? But there's a reason (laughs) why most of us are not a size 2 And that's because it's hard and our genetics aren't really made that way. So I would just say, as I take a deep breath here, be kinder to yourself if you have a diabetes diagnosis and take a moment to think this through. Yes, we could all eat better, but diabetes is not caused by diet. And it's just one of these misconceptions that is really, it's harmful in a way. You know, we don't tell people with 
high blood pressure that they should be ashamed of themselves and how dare they need medication or the same with cholesterol, right? But we do that with people with diabetes. You must have eaten a ton of salty food. That's probably why you have high blood pressure. You don't really hear that. No. Right. Or even if you did, we don't shame people for that in the same way. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's wild. So it's one of these things where we've really, you know, in the diabetes community, we've taken a long time to try to fix this because it keeps people from seeking care. And a misdiagnosis is really dangerous. The most dangerous time to be diabetic is before anybody knows you have it. Right. So if you have type one, you know, you could be dead in days if people don't know you have it, if you don't get insulin. And it happens. People are misdiagnosed with the flu. Happens this time of year a lot. A three-year-old will go in and, oh, he's got the flu. And then, you know, a week later, they're in intensive care because now they have type one diabetes. Wow. Hey, I have a podcast on that. Which is called, by the way. (laughs) It's Diabetes Connections. (laughs) Which we can link in our show notes, of course. Thank you. Yeah. And so we don't actually do a lot on the show about educating on those things, because once you find my show, you have diabetes or someone in your family does. So we do deep dives on, you know, the newest insulin pump, the newest insulins that are coming out, lots of technology, lots of, you know, celebrities with type one and things like that. It's a lot. Of, it's actually a lot of fun. I do get asked, like, isn't it sad to do a show like that? Or no, it's great. <laughs> Well, it's great how you've used your news background to create the diabetes news show that you were looking for. You found the need and you filled the need because it didn't exist out there. And then to bring it back around to JPZ, these are connections. I know personally, you introduced me to one of my bestest, most favorite clients, Melissa Joy Dobbins. I don't just say that because she'll probably listen to this episode, but (laughs) she is a registered dietitian nutritionist. She has a podcast called Sound Bites. You connected me with her. We've been working together for several years now. And then she actually connected me with the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, and I work on their podcast, too. And that is all thanks to the JPZ connection for me that is Stacey Sims. So thank you. Oh, you got it. I love connecting people. And it really is one of the best things as an alumni that comes out of the group, right? We all keep in touch. We can all help people. I always said, if I need a job, if I was going to go back in radio, there's a whole bunch of people I could call up. And it's not just for radio stuff. It's for you know, I hate to say it, when people are diagnosed with diabetes, they find me. Or when people have questions about, um, I wrote a couple books, they want to know about that. Even, I've had a couple of conversations, well, let's share one and then I'll tell you about another one, about moving to Charlotte, about geography and things like that. And then truly in the last couple of years, there have been more and more conversations about women in broadcasting. Um, And a bunch of us are having a lot of offline conversations about that. I'm really thrilled about how that's going. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that, Stacey, because women in broadcasting is a topic I did want to cover with you today. Absolutely. And if we're seeing a sea change in that. Um, I don't think we're starting to see a sea change in that. I hope we do see more of it. Um, I think <laughs> I think radio has a lot of problems, you know, one of which was who announced they were retiring this week or was leaving? Was it Scott Shannon? Yeah. Okay, 75 years old. Okay. Bless his heart, as we say in the South. Yes. But when I saw that and a bunch of people were commenting on the post, and this is a a guy who's been a huge player in in New York and really nationally for a very long time, obviously. And the people commenting were like, I can't believe they're forcing him out or this can't be his choice. And what I wanted to say was this is one of the huge problems with radio. He's going to leave and be replaced by somebody who's, what, 25 years old? Hmm. Look at all the talent between the ages of, let's generously say, 30 and 50, 30 and 60, that never got a chance in so many of these major markets because these guys never retired, Hmm. right? And I don't know how you fix something like that, but it's a huge problem in the industry 
that there was never this chance given to, I mean, not even Gen X, but to millennials who never got to grow their radio audiences. And so radio, I don't know about your markets, in Charlotte, North Carolina, the number one radio station for a quarter last year, it was only for a quarter, but it's still significant, was the classical radio station Hmm. that Davidson College owns. Now, it's a lovely station. They play great music. But what does that tell you about radio in this market? That the average listener is not 25 years old. The average listener is, who's listening to classical music? 80? (laughs) Let's be generous. 65? Okay, boomer. Exactly. And those people have money and they're spending, but not like they used to, right? It's just, it's one of those things. So you were asking me about men and women and I went to age. And there's nothing wrong with those listeners. That's fabulous. That's wonderful. But not really. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And so radio has lost all these younger listeners for many more reasons than just a 75-year-old DJ. But they've lost many, many listeners over the years for many reasons. Um, When I was at BT, they would laugh at me because I'd be like, we have to be on social media. Mm -hmm. We have to be on social media. I'm one of the few journalists or broadcasters that was working for a large station and didn't get verified on Twitter. That's because my station didn't take it seriously. So everybody, if you, and I know people are going to look this up. Well, there's people on BT who are verified. They're after a certain time period. If you work there after a certain time period, the station made the effort, but they didn't see it. They didn't see the value. They didn't see the value of podcasting. I remember in 2007 telling my boss in Vermont, we need to be on Facebook. And he said, why? And it was an uphill battle, but we eventually got on Facebook. So your point is certainly well taken. It resonates with me. Oh, it was horrible. I mean, not even verification, but right, a presence on Facebook, a presence on podcasting. I spoke to a lot of program directors in 2020 and 2021 about podcasting because I was considering doing a consulting business. I think radio stations do not understand podcasting at all. Agreed. And this is to your point about monetization. We can talk about that. They understand um, how to put sound into a computer. They understand that they have great talent and they should be available to people whenever they want to listen to them. But they don't understand how to make any money on podcasting. So they're leaving so much money on the table. I can help if you're listening. I can help with that. Call Stacy. Call me. We'll, we'll tag team it. We'll talk to you about how you can uh, be successful in podcasting. Oh, it's unbelievable. Okay, before we come back to JPZ, I do want to ask you specifically about the gender piece of all of this. You know, it was interesting. I went into talk radio, news talk radio, when I was a 31-year-old new mom, mm-hmm. which is not the demographic. Sure. For news talk. I was 25 years younger than the youngest host at that time. That was at the station, which was fine. It worked out great for me, but it was very eye-opening. There is a lot of, there's a lot of problems for younger women in radio and women in general in radio. And I'm not going to be the first person to talk about this. And it's not a question of sexual harassment for the most part. It's not a question of, of that. It's much more just a bias against listening to women. You know, when I went into radio, um, when I was thinking about it, when I was listening to it growing up, you had basically the two guys in a girl format, yeah. even on a newsier station. And the girl was there to be like either the news girl that the hosts would kind of make fun of or the giggle girl yeah. that the hosts would kind of make fun of. And even, and I'm sorry to say this, even when I went to JPZ my freshman year in 1989, I encountered a lot of that. And that was actually my first role at JPZ. Um, I was a newsreader and I was on the wacky morning show and I didn't like it. I didn't feel comfortable. I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I felt much more comfortable in different environments. So I left and that really changed. There was a sea change of that because 
in the next few years, you had a lot more women in leadership at WJPZ. Yes. But when I say I have conversations with the women of WJPZ over the years, it started, I want to say maybe 10 years ago now, it might have been less when we were all there for an alumni weekend. And on Fridays, you guys do those great panels. And all the panels were full of guys. There was not one woman on any of those panels. And that really started us saying, look, we have to point this out. We have to do something. And, you know, it shouldn't be incumbent always on women to do that. But I I think it did take us pointing it out. And so last year, we had a really good discussion at the reunion about having more help for women in their career, because I've given a lot of um, how to negotiate salary advice, how to talk to your program director, how to do this kind of stuff how to make sure you you aren't pushed around. Because I think a lot of guys don't mean to do it. It's just the way that, oh, I hate to say it like this. It's the way society shapes us. So it's very difficult. I mean, it's not something you and I are going to solve today, but it's worth talking about. It's worth bringing up. And I wish, frankly, I had the language that I have now and the conversations that are being had very publicly about women. I wish I'd had that when I was a 31-year-old new mom at the radio station because I wasn't treated badly by any stretch of the imagination, but I wasn't taken seriously for quite a few years. It took me six or seven years to find my voice hmm. at that station and tell them what I really was worth and what I needed and what I wanted and, um, and to get it. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. So you mentioned working with the female students, female alumni of the radio station, and then you mentioned your experience there at the beginning when you first got there in 89. I'm curious what other lessons you have taken with you from your time at JPZ and JPZ adjacent (laughs) through your college years that have served you well uh, in your professional life. I think, and I may get pushback from the wonderful people who were there that summer, but I think the lesson that I learned from WJPZ in the summer, what was that, of 92? I said they gave away a car at the state fair, right? Yeah. Is act like you belong. Yeah. Just act like you belong. And that's kind of adjacent to fake it till you make it, but I don't like that. But if you can act with confidence going into a situation, even if you might not feel that confident, if you can act with that confidence, it will come. It really will come eventually. And nobody... (laughs) And people aren't going to call you out on it as much as you think they will. So, you know, when I think of that summer and other people may tell the story and they may tell it differently, but I bet at least one or two of the people who are integral to that were like, I can't believe we did that. And then, you know, I called them up and asked and they said, yes, I can't tell you how many times in my career and especially in podcasting when you're asking sponsors and you're putting deals together and I am all by myself. I do not have a staff. I do have an editor who helps me, but I do not have any kind of staff for this. There have been so many times when I've said, I can't believe I'm going to ask for this. And then I do it and the person says yes. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. So that's a big lesson I took is, you know, you have to have to ask, be confident about it. You know, I've I've told my kids a lot. If you're afraid to hear no, you will never hear yes. I like that. I like that a lot. It's not the best parenting advice because then they ask you everything. (laughs) (sighs) And then you have to say no. Can I have the car keys? Can I stay out late tonight? Yeah, exactly. No. But it's a great life philosophy or it's a great life lesson. And it's really helped me a lot. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, the chutzpah of being a 
student-run radio station that played big in the market. So right off the top, Stace, you mentioned Beth as a great friend of yours and a lifelong relationship you made at the station. Any other names come to mind? Yeah, those connections came in handy very quickly. Right after graduation, I took some time, um, didn't get a job right away. I grew up just north of New York City in Westchester County and was looking for a job as a local reporter, TV reporter. So I knew I, I had to get out of New York City. That wasn't going to be an entry level. But I was lucky and got a job as the fill-in on a morning radio show for a woman who'd gone on maternity leave. So I had a three-month guaranteed gig with full-time hours at WFAS AM and FM, but I was doing the AM in White Plains, New York. So I would work in the morning and then I would send out my resume you know, wherever I could. But I was looking for television. I was not looking for radio at the time. And there were a couple of people in Utica, New York, which was like a three and a half hour drive. So I could zip up there after work on a Friday and make it in time for a job interview if I was lucky enough to get one or just to go knock on doors. So I did that a couple of times. And one of those people was B.B. Good, was Sharon Goodman. So I crashed with B.B. for a couple of nights. I would go up. I mean, it's so ridiculous that we did this, but I know I'm not the only one. I would literally go to the TV station and try to meet with the news director, give them my tape, my VHS tape or my hi or whatever we were using at the time, but I'm pretty sure it was VHS. This was the fall of 93, right after my graduation. And then I would hang out with B.B. and with Adam Shapiro. And there were a couple of people living in Utica at that time. Um, they were both working in radio there at different stations. And in, I don't know, late November, I finally got a job at WUTR, one of two TV stations that I had dropped my tape off to in Utica. I really needed a roommate because my salary was going to be $12,500 a year. Yikes. Um, and even though Utica at the time, and I assume now is a pretty affordable place to live, um, that that was not a wage that would set me up, right, for high-class living. So Bibi and I got an apartment together. We had opposite shifts. I don't remember exactly what our shifts even were, but we were not home together a ton. But, you know, we hung out together. We went out together. It was great. And that's also a time when I started coming back to the banquet because we were so close, first of all, Utica to Syracuse, and there were a couple of us. So it was really fun. And then fast forward 10 years, 15 years, I'm trying to think because B.B. was the voice of Radio Disney. She was not only one of their really prominent jocks, she was the B. I don't know if anybody listening remembers this, but we watched a ton of, it was, I think, Disney Junior at the time. This would have been the early 2000s. My, my kids were born in 2001 and 2004. So when they were really little, we used to watch Disney Junior or whatever it was called, and they had this B and it was BB. And I was so impressive to my kids because I knew BB good. I knew that voice. I knew the B. Never mind that I had been on television in central New York for almost 10 years and, and then done one of the top rated morning shows in Charlotte where they actually lived for another 10 years. <laughs> you know, my, the only thing they were interested in me on radio was could I get them tickets to radio Disney shows? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I never planned to go into radio. I was always going to stay in television. And it turns out that I, radio is my true love and I, I should have gone back to JPZ much earlier. But people like Matt Friedman, who were so helpful along the way. I mean, I love talking to Matt about industry and about anything. He's so smart and he's so good. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to leave people out because there's just so many people. I've kept in touch with Dave Gorab, again, with radio industry stuff has been really helpful. And it's always fun to me where I run into 
you know, we're in Charlotte. We've got a bunch of people here. We always joke that we should have like a Charlotte picnic. Yeah, you've got Lauren Corrier, formerly Lauren Levine. You've got my cousins and more. Yeah, everyone should come to Charlotte. It's fabulous. I've also um, I didn't know her because she's she's younger than me, but I think you connected me with Michelle Badrian. Yep, formerly Michelle Buckwalter. She's in Memphis, very close friend of mine that I've connected with over the years. Yeah. I mean, speaking of women in radio, she and I have had a lot of conversations over the years. Um, she's fantastic. It's an amazing group. What's really nice about it is when you say like, you know, who have you kept in touch with? Even people that I have just met at the banquet last year. Yeah. Or if you, if you connected me with somebody who's a student now, it's that instant connection, right? You understand what they're going through. You understand what they want. You understand this. I don't want to call it a sickness of radio, <laughs> but there's definitely something different about everybody who wants to be at least in front of the microphone. I mean, you, you program director types, you have your quirks too, but there's <laughs> definitely a radio industry, or maybe we'll call us podcasters. I don't think so, though. I think it's still radio industry people. There's definitely a spark. And if you're at Syracuse and if you're at JPZ, there's a reason why you're there. There's a reason why you've decided to do that. And that, I think, is something that really connects us in a way that, say, being a policy studies major, shout out to Maxwell School, but it's not quite the same thing. You can tell that you're an expert podcaster, Stacey, because you've given me the perfect place to leave this. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us today on the podcast and for all you do for JPZ, for students and alumni and all the connections that you help make. Uh, so thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.